0: Here on CBS Sports, that's Tom Fernelli, that's Bud Elliott, that's Danny Cannell. I'm Chip Patterson, coming to you live at YouTube.com slash Cover3 and all across the 24-7 Sports Facebook network. If you're coming and watching us live, hang out, smash that subscribe, smash that like button, come and join us in the chat. Fun show that we got for you today. We are going to be breaking down some of the toughest schedules in the entire country. What are realistic outcomes for those teams also that have some of the toughest schedules in the entire country? We reportedly have a new commissioner from the Big 12, and it is not the kind of you know, internal hire that we are used to for power five conference commissioners. It is not a athletic director that we have seen uh, in recent years. And so we're going to discuss that maybe what it might mean for the big 12 moving forward. Uh, Also the ACC saying goodbye to the Atlantic and coastal divisions. We'll get into that three, five, five scheduling plan, identify some teams who've got the better end of that draw um, and other takeaways. But we begin with a look at what's going on in Los Angeles, Bud Elliott. If you have been following him on Twitter at Bud Elliott three, then you have seen he is on site at the Elite Eleven competition. That includes some of the top uh, quarterbacks in the high school level, especially from the 2023 cycle. It also includes some of the top quarterbacks in college football right now. I saw you were able to uh, share a little bit of footage of the the camp counselors uh, as they are uh, for the competition. Uh, they are throwing the ball around. So. Wanted to start with just uh, some overall thoughts, what the notebook is looking like uh, after, you know, what, first day or yeah. one day of competition? How, how are things going at Elite 11?
3: They're, they're going really well. Uh, so day one is not really much of a competition. It's more just, hey, here's the drills and the general things we're going to try to work on out here this week. It's really a, 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 a competition. I, I call day one more of a camp and the in the final two days more of a competition. I, I like check in too. You, you see these guys in shorts and t-shirt and they're walking, you know, one after another and it's just you pick out physical differences like, "Oh, okay, like yeah, so they're both 6'3 205, but the one kid is a little more, you know, filled out looking, the other guy's got, you know, more more width to him. You, you shake all their hands, you're like, "Whoa, okay, that that guy should be playing D end if this quarterback thing doesn't work out or maybe the one's got Kenny Pickett hands, right?" Uh, but it, there, were, there were a couple guys who really stood out to me. Uh, Dante Moore out uh, of Detroit, obviously, we talked about how important that would be for Michigan to get him. Doesn't look like uh, they're going to get him. Oregon seems to be in a pretty, uh, pretty prime spot there, which would be huge for Dan Lanning. I, I just thought he had such a consistent, smooth stroke. It was easy velo off, off the hand. Footwork was you know pretty clean. Just a guy that you can see being very productive at the college level, and um, he was throwing next to C.J. Stroud and Devin Leary and, and uh, Dorian Thompson Robinson and Caleb Williams, uh, all of whom just they're so much thicker than they were in high school, right? That that muscle milk hits hard, or I guess no free ads. But uh, in, anyway, they're, they're much much bigger than they were. And there's certainly a difference in the way the ball comes off uh, guys who are about to get drafted's hands, but not that much difference. And he, he really looked like he belonged there, and then uh, he stepped up, and he hit the crossbar in the uh, 50-yard uh, crossbar throw challenge after Caleb Williams did it twice in a row on two consecutive throws. So that's, uh, that's some serious uh, ability right there. He looked pretty good. Jackson Arnold, actually, who was committed to Oklahoma, a uh, big-time arm, just easy, easy velo on that kid. And we'll give something for Clemson fans here. Obviously, they missed out on Arch Manning. They kind of bailed out on that process. He hit the eject button a little bit earlier than some other uh, teams did. Chris Fazina in person is, is pretty physically impressive. That's, that's a well-built kid. He moves well. It's a nice group out here, even without Arch Manning. And I think there's a chance for a you know, number of guys to step up and maybe challenge him for that number one spot. If they can have a special week. If you hit the crossbar enough, do you get bumped up in your rating? Yeah. Yeah. I move you from like a 99, like a 99 to a 1.0. Isn't Jane
0: Rashada in the house? He you, is. Have we gotten a chance to hear from him? Was he, he, he
3: buying? Was he buying? <laughs> uh, he. <yeah. laughs> and it, it's, it, it's one of those nice Marriott. So like, he, he's, he's got the, got the scratch for that, that kind of tab. Um, I, I did not get a chance to talk to him, but I, I think Steve Wilfong uh, did at check-in. It, he had an okay day. Uh, the, he certainly has a, a, a big arm. I'm, look, there's four or five stations, so I'm just watching you know, one or two stations and trying to rotate around. That's one of the reasons back when I was with SB, I was always kind of jealous of, of 247 because they would have an army of guys out here, right, 24-7 sports, and I would be one guy. It was like I, I always had to preface my stuff, hey, I'm trying to be out here. I go to all the events. I don't want to take any off but I'm not getting to see every single rep every kid. We get to see every rep of every kid because we have enough people to cover all the stations who have been doing this for a long time. But I, I don't think I would have had him in like a top five from yesterday. But, again, some of these dudes do some of these drills more than others. And I, I like day two and day three for the evaluation purpose a lot better. Uh, day one is more just what's the throw in motion look like in person compared to what we saw on tape and how does the kid carry himself?
0: Dante Moore's recruitment. The you mentioned. We've discussed the, the Michigan uh, quarterback plan and how when you weren't going to be able to get CJ Card, CJ Card goes to Notre Dame. Then a lot more pressure was put on Dante Moore. You mentioned Dante Moore now looking like he might be. The uh, Oregon is in a good position for him. What is the story of that re- recruitment been and sort of what do you see from him uh, as a prospect?
3: Yeah, so he he's just a very consistent accurate player. I I actually saw him, I think, going back to my notes, either two years ago or three years ago as an underclassman in the elite 11 Orlando regional. Uh, And as you guys know, I'm usually not real big on quarterbacks from the state of Florida. They, I mean, except for Danny, most of them don't seem to work out. So he he popped pretty easy uh, down here and he's just, he's very polished, but it doesn't seem like he's tapped out, right? He's not one of these guys who looks like he's 28. He, He still has some room to grow. Oregon, I think, is in a good spot for him. Obviously, Texas A&M is in it as well. But I, at this point, I, like most of the talk out here is is Oregon. But we've seen curveballs thrown. Florida felt great about Rashada two weeks ago until they didn't.
0: Mm. Um, so follow him at Bud Elliott. 3 Two more days. He's also on CBS Sports HQ uh, and, of course, 24-7 Sports. As he mentioned, there is an army and just updates on all of those top players. Uh, Any availability that they're able to get, they are turning it around. uh, So be sure to pay attention to that. Before we get into uh, the future of ACC scheduling and some of the toughest schedules in the entire country, just a a, a unique um, angle to the transition of power in the Big 12. Bob Bowlesby announced that he was not going to be uh, continuing as the Big 12 commissioner. And CBS Sports' Dennis Dodd uh, is reporting that the Big 12 is targeting Brett Yormark, the longtime Northeastern sports executive and current COO of Jay-Z's Rock Nation, to be the next commissioner. Now, the Big 12 has not confirmed any of this. The expectation is that when Big 12 media days begin on July 13th, that is when we will see the Big 12 introduce your mark as the next commissioner. But this is uh much like you know the, the Big Tens higher, much like the Pac 12s higher. This is not our traditional pipeline that we've seen, you know, prior to being at Rock Nation, oh, when he joined as COO back in 2019. Uh, he w- spent 15 years with the Nets, uh, a job he started back in 2005. Now, he oversaw the franchise's move from New Jersey to Brooklyn. Like, this is very much a, a professional move, and I, I was just curious and wanted to kick around. Do you think that the outside-the-box hire for the Big 12 here is indicative of what we're going to see, see at the higher levels of college sports? And is there any bonus to this for a conference that is seeing its two biggest properties in Texas and Oklahoma uh, run off to the SEC here in the next couple years?
1: I don't even know that it's outside the box as much as it's just the continuation of the trend that we've already seen. Like this is if you look at the Big Ten, Kevin Warren did not come from an NCAA college kind of background. In the Pac-12, George Klyovkov did not come from an NCAA college athletics background. Like if you look at the recent commissioner hires, Jim Phillips in the ACC is the only one who has been like a longtime person working in the field and has familiarity with it. And I think that this is just a trend in that, like all the tea leaves, when you read them, they're going to be breaking off from the NCAA. That's why they're hiring people that don't have any experience with the NCAA because they don't need it. And when you talk to ADs more and more, they all, as Power 5 ADs, they all seem to think that we're coming to a time where the NCAA is going to be something of the past. These leagues are going to form their own thing. They're going to come together, figure it out, and they're hiring a bunch of people to have more of a background in sports business than college athletics administration and i think that's the theme it's it's going to be more about selling this as a sports league than it is going to be selling it as college football
4: i think I think it's selling it as an entertainment league. Like we're finally starting to embrace the entertainment professional value of college football. That's the trend. I think this does feel similar though when Klyovkov was hired and we're all like, ooh, let's Google who the heck is this guy. It feels similar to that reaction. I also thought it was interesting that the, you know, the big I think there was a small group of big 12 presidents that interviewed three candidates, none with college, you know traditional college football backgrounds. They were all outside the box um, ideas and they ended up going with this Yormark. Uh, mark, Apparently. I think this is all about one thing. I think it's about negotiating billion dollar contracts. Like what experience do you have in business negotiating deals as opposed to, you know, managing, uh, you know, graduation rates and, mm-hmm. you know, and managing different uh, sports. It's, and that's one thing I thought was refreshing with Klyovkov came in. He was like, I'm not an idiot. Football and basketball are the drivers. So they're a priority right now. And I think, like, there's always been, and for good or bad, I think it's been great because we've had a lot of Title IX discussions now. But I think, you know, 10 years ago, it would have been like, man, we're going to elevate all sports and we're going to try to make sure we have equality across the board. And I think now people are just being more honest about what is footing the bill for those conferences. And I think that's why we're going this direction with guys that have experience negotiating big contracts, entertainment industry, television industry. Like that's the that's the kind of trend that I see them going.
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see conferences as far as, you know, like the executive branch of conferences kind of take on the same kind of model that you see with football coaching staffs where you're going to have your head coach, but you're going to have a whole lot more analysts and position coaches and all that stuff. Whereas like you are saying, Danny, like your mark's not coming in to worry about the Big 12 swim team, nor was Klyovkov. I think you're going to see a situation where conferences are going to have their commissioner who's probably going to be in charge of football and television and all that stuff for the most part. And you're going to have, you know, like deputies or whatever the heck you want to call them, assistants to the commissioner who are running the Olympic sports, who are taking care of the stuff that is still within the sanction of the NCAA and that kind of stuff to make sure that they're fitting those rules. But he's going to be more of a bigger picture and he's going to have, you know, deputies doing the smaller picture stuff that's my prediction for what most conferences are going to look like in the future
4: was it one of the ideas from the pac-12 didn't they float co-commissioners like for that specific? i think it was one of. i would like and i totally agree with you i think they'll have the face the, the the conference commissioner and then a bunch of people under him to make sure the other departments are moving along the way they should yeah, you're
1: going to have a CEO and a COO, except the E will be for entertainment and the O will be for Olympic sports. Well,
0: yeah. we're not worried about keeping university presidents as happy, right? Well, like part of the conference commissioner's job was to be able to sit in those rooms with all the academics and be able to keep them happy. If we are moving towards the entertainment product, which is a, I mean, a good, a very good observation, and it's funny because uh, a friend, Michael Felder, uh, one of our friends, Stadium Hand in the Dirt pod- podcast he uh, he likes to say some people don't like college football college football is their favorite TV show they don't actually like love football but they love watching football and they love the routine of watching football on Saturdays and that if if the sport is going to take the the next step here doesn't this seem like we're all gearing up for like you said Danny just just building the best entertainment product that can make the most money and get the most viewers? We are trying to serve the fan who might not love football, but football is their favorite TV show.
4: I got a question for you guys. Yeah. yeah. Is this a good job? The Big like, 12 would you want, Like, Let's say you had options, which I feel like mock probably did. Um, is this a job you'd be running to take? Or would you oh. – like? because I all the uncertainty – Like the Big 12 is vulnerable right now, especially with Oklahoma, Texas leaving. I know they're getting the four new teams, but from all the coaches that I talk to, they feel like a split is coming. There's going to be 30, 40, 50 teams in this super conference. Where does that leave the Big 12? All right. I mean, you could say the same for any conference, but I think you would feel like Sankey and Warren are pretty safe, right? Like they're going to be a part of it the other two I feel like are going to be a part of it but who knows but I feel like this is one of those ones where this and maybe this is what makes it such an uh, integral higher is that I feel like the Big 12 has the most uncertainty. All right, I I think this is a probably a great job actually. Um, right. so a couple things. One,
3: I hear the same thing from coaches Danny that they think it's going to be like 35 to 40 teams. But I don't have any reason to believe that the coaches actually know. And <laughs> Every time we see conference realignment, uh, we see all these teams trying to jump up into better conferences that, or better divisions, right? How many teams are – like Jacksonville State is making the jump to FBS. Programs are always going to bet on themselves, and they're going to step up, and they're going to be like, hey, I'll, I'll take those losses. And some of these teams don't want to go five and seven every year. You need some teams that you can actually beat, and a couple teams will be okay you know, going one and nine every year if they are in the Super League just because they, they want to take that check. So I think that the Super League will be bigger than that. I think the Big 12 is pretty safely in, in, in my estimation. Um, and I think that's probably where you can draw the cutoff, right? The the Power Five as of right now, plus maybe a couple independent in Notre Dame obviously would, would get in. Uh, maybe for ratings, if you wanted the service academies to play, they don't really need the money. Um, but you would be the the least talented teams in that league on average by, by a pretty good bit if you look at the recruiting uh, we got blue chip ratio coming out next week nobody in the new big 12 is even close to being a national championship quality roster like they're three seasons of recruiting away at best so i think that means you have a ton of, of chance to experiment remember we talked about like incorporating live betting into broadcasts and in into your network rights what if you, you have some streaming options here where people can actually live bet on their device on their screen while watching. You're going to have a ton of close games because all these teams recruit at about the same level. It's going to be a wide open interesting league. And I think when you're not expected to win anything, you have the freedom to do some really, you know, funky stuff and, and experiment. How much money did Pat McAfee get for DraftKings? 30 million? The Big 12 can get a hell of a lot more than that if they were able to incorporate some on, on-screen betting technology with the live betting concept. So for that reason, I think it's probably a really good job. You you, you get you're going to get paid well you could probably get a boatload of gambling money sponsorship especially when they break off and you get to experiment and have fun with it i, I think it's pretty cool
1: yeah i, I think in re, like relation to other conference commissioner jobs right now it's a pretty decent job to get to because like bud's intimating you you're taking over in a new era where things are going to be changing so you can kind of put you know, you've got, you're have got. you probably going to have more freedom to put your fingerprint on what the league's going to be in the future. You're going to be able to have the do new t- television deals. You're going to be able to do stuff with that. Whereas, like, compared to the ACC job Jim Phillips just took, you're kind of stuck in a pretty crappy situation for a while that I don't know that you're going to be able to get out of. You've kind of just got to maintain rather than grow things or be able to put your stamp on it. So I think from that perspective, it's a good job. And I also think it depends on what his overall ambitions are. Like, if he... He's running an agency now, so he's already kind of in that world. If he takes over the Big 12 gig and he's able to steer them through losing Texas and Oklahoma and brings them out on the other side looking good, part of a Super League or part of a new television deal that's getting the conference paid, whatever it is he could take his time as the big 12 commissioner and maybe spin that towards more of a similar role in a professional league, whether it's the NBA or the NFL or major league baseball or whatever. So I do think that it's a good job. I think that in re- relation to other conference commissioner jobs, it's not the best one, but I think it's not the worst.
0: I think that uh, if he can get the state of Texas to legalize sports betting, then he will have uh, created if, – if he can make that happen, well, then maybe he needs. he's more qualified for just being the Big 12 commissioner. You know, If he can get the state of Texas to legalize sports betting, then he probably deserves a lobbying role for – Speaking, speaking of money. that,
1: sorry about North Carolina, Chip.
0: I know. Uh, just – you
4: know, the, the – Oh, it just uh, got voted down? I missed that. Was that a vote? Oh, Nobody it was –
0: it was it was fantastic. They cited a point shaving scandal from the Dixie Classic in the early 1960s. The Dixie Classic was when you'd start every college basketball season with NC State, North Carolina, Duke and Wake Forest all playing this like exhibition against each other and it might have counted for the records, but the point was there was a point shaving scandal, but because that happened 50 60 years ago we're not going to do it. And also somebody came through and they eliminated like at the very end, they eliminated college sports entirely. They said, OK, I'll vote for the bill, but only if it's professional sports. And then you're just leaving millions and millions of dollars in a sport in a state that loves college sports. So I, I love people. I don't think it's happening. I,
1: I, I love that we're on this show every week talking about guys getting 8 million to go play quarterback somewhere. And the people that are doing the law still think that these are like, like this, what about the sanctity? They could get to these poor children and force them to throw games. It's like, dude, they've already, no, it's like the same thing with professional sports. How are you going to convince a guy making 30 million a year to throw a game for 300 (laughs) grand?
3: Exactly. Also, uh, do you know where does a pretty good job of detecting uh, game and match fixing scandals? Be bookmakers, yeah. Well, right, exactly. So, who do you think is more likely to throw up a red flag and say, "Hey, something's weird here"? DraftKings, who is like a couple billion dollar company, or the guy I meet outside of Macy's to get to get an envelope, right? Like, because <laughs> that, that that's kind of what you got to do right now. DraftKings, or whoever Caesars, so obviously, we probably should cite our sponsor. Uh, they're more likely to, to detect irregularities in betting patterns, it's like, hmm, I wonder why everybody who never wins money in our casinos are betting on this 401 underdog for the upset. That's kind of funky. Whereas if you have a bunch of shady, unregulated bookies out there who are not communicating with each other, they might see some weird line movement on their screen, but they don't have a a true network. So they really can't throw up the flag and say, "Mm, let's pull this. Something's weird nearly as fast as they can in Europe. Like there's still match fixing that goes on, especially in in tennis because it's almost impossible to prove unless you have receipts of it. But they catch that stuff a lot more than I think we can do in the US because they're more fully regulated market.
0: Very, listen, you're, uh, may, maybe next session, maybe we'll wait until after the midterms, see what kind of shakeups we've got uh, in the state house and see if it ends up coming back. All right, before we get to the toughest schedules in the entire country, the, a bit of scheduling news came down from the Atlantic Coast Conference, the ACC announcing that after 2022, Goodbye, Atlantic Division. Goodbye, Coastal Chaos. They are moving to a one-division format. It is, uh, as they discussed in their spring meetings, the 3-5-5 five, five scheduling plan. What does that mean? Every single team in the ACC, all 14 of them, they have three primary opponents that they will play annually, alternating home and away. But then here's the thing that I think a lot of fans are excited about you know, the rest of your eight game schedule will have five teams that are not your primary opponents one year, then the next year, change them out for another five. So what does it mean? It means that when uh, a player is at a college football program, if he is there for four years, then across those four years with the three, five, five rotation, he will get to see every team in the ACC and get to see every team in the ACC, both home and away the one division, of course, uh, you know, gives us an opportunity, probably sets up the ACC to have the best possible ACC championship game. There's also maybe a couple takeaways from the draw and the, the primary opponents who did or did not get assigned to all these different teams. Uh, before we hit the break, wanted to see what everyone thought about uh, the three five five schedule announcement, but then also the primary opponents as they were assigned.
1: I, I, why can't they do it for this year? I guess it's too late. Thank at this point. you. I, I, Thank you. I, yeah, it's for me. I, I'm. I think it's the most ideal situation for a 14 team conference. I think it makes the most sense in that you have your protected rivalries and then you're playing everybody at least every other year because it's 13 games. You've got 13 opponents. It makes perfect sense. What I want to know from Danny and Bud is how the two of you feel about Florida State getting screwed harder than anybody else with the permanent opponents drawing both Clemson and Miami every single season.
3: I just don't think you have room to complain if you're in the ACC about schedule strength. I'm sorry. Like I I really don't like if you're a Florida state fan and you don't want Clemson and Miami every year, I think you're doing something wrong, man. Like what, what other games do you really want to go to Tallahassee for? I guarantee you FSU like begged for Clemson and Miami to be on the schedule. Right. I think they also probably wanted Georgia tech maybe, but I don't know if Georgia tech wanted that smoke because they already have two other really difficult teams. And I also think that opposing ADs would probably riot if you gave the Yellow Jackets, you already have a great media market, you know, in theory at least, Clemson, Louisville, and FSU, three fan bases that actually do travel to road games, right? Like they, there's a couple teams in this league that just don't buy tickets and don't go anywhere. Virginia fans don't come to your stadium. Duke fans don't. Wake fans don't. Hokies travel pretty well. I'm trying, Danny, who, who else doesn't travel? Boston College fans do not travel to road games in the ACC. Mm-hmm. Syracuse kind of sneakily does. Maybe it's because they're a lot. It's a private school. They got a lot of money. I don't. Does Pitt travel? No. Uh, Syracuse
0: no. and Pitt. From what I've seen, it's uh, transplants. They're just all over the place. Yeah. Like as yeah. as the Northeast has continued to migrate further down the coast, you just you see them pop up more.
3: You want a conspiracy theory that I floated on Twitter, by the way? Sure. I don't think it's true now. I think I know the real reason why they. If did, she didn't get Georgia Tech, I I don't think they wanted you know that that smoke. Uh, not that FSU is actually that good right now, but in theory. So Atlanta is one of the biggest alumni bases for the Knolls. I think it's actually the third biggest. And you got a lot of casual fans in Atlanta. If you allow the Knowles to come there every two years, it's less of an incentive for the, those folks to get down to Tallahassee. It's kind of the same thing. Like, Why don't you play more games in Tampa or Orlando to be a little closer to your fans? Well, if you get that, then you may not have quite the impetus to get down for a game. Just spitballing. I think that, uh,
0: you know, I need, I need to come up with a good way to maybe call them like NI Louisville or something like that. Like just whatever, some way to merge Louisville and NIL because if they get to go to Atlanta and South Florida, mm-hmm. you know, like that's that's really good recruiting right there for uh, for Scott Satterfield and, and that um, machine that they've got rolling. The strangest permanent partner to me off the, just, just looking at it off the cuff, I was like Virginia Tech and Wake. And then I remembered that the two zero zero (laughs) game. I remember the campuses are 90 minutes away. And of course the zero zero game with Frank Beamer's uh, arms up in the air, Uh, NC state catches uh, Clemson Duke and North Carolina. So they're saying goodbye to wake forest, which was a little bit of a rivalry. NC state and Clemson have the old textile bowl. So there's a little bit of history right there. Um, uh, The, my number one statement after I looked at the chart and I was trying to note who got the better or worst end of the deal, the thing that is great about this 355 model for this ACC is that you are going to be playing everyone across two years. So yeah. it, like it's it is a it is inherently so much more balanced than it was with the previous two division model.
1: So North Carolina and Wake no longer need to schedule out-of-conference games against one another.
0: Exactly.
3: And they still could if they wanted to, but they yeah, they
0: <laughs> yeah, they're going to see each other every other year, so then
3: it, it works out. Hokies <laughs> got screwed, right? You get no, 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 Georgia Tech, no Miami. Those are the two, like the two games. When I think Virginia Tech, I think since joining the ACC, the two games I like watching these guys play the most are generally Georgia Tech because that was Paul Johnson against against Beamer, uh, and then Miami. Like they've had some classics, even back to the old uh, Big East days. And I, I don't know if you're a Virginia Tech fan. You could probably win a lot of games with the permanent opponents you got, but are you actually excited to watch those games?
1: I think I think with Pitt because you've got Big East bloodlines there still as well, so I think that could develop into something. Like Chip said, the Wake game—I don't know if that's really ever going to be a rivalry, but I don't know. Save it on
0: gas, baby. It's yeah. that gets Virginia Tech. I mean, that's bad for Wake. That gets Virginia Tech fans at Wake Stadium. You've Got to defend home turf.
4: Uh, they're at Truest Field. Do you? So do you guys count this as an eight-game conference schedule or the Notre Dame X-Factor, does that make it eight and a half? Because like, I'm a fan of nine conference games, right? And so that was the one thing I was kind of bummed about. But then you throw in the Notre Dame wild card. It's like, all right, you can kind of see why maybe not. But that was – so that was my two things that I noticed was – why couldn't we do it this year? Pac-12 did it. Like, you, you, you made, we made schedules during COVID, and we flipped on a script. Why couldn't we just implement this now? College football has an obsession with announcing things down the road that people get excited for that you probably could do sooner, but let's just make you wait. I don't understand that. And then the other thing was, like, I wish it was a nine games. I wish it was a 3-6-6 six, six model or something, something where you had the opportunity to go uh, with nine conference games. That was kind of the two reactions I had, and then there is too, the two um, you know the two highest uh, win percentage against conference opponents will play in the championship game. Uh, that to me, there's going to be something that happens that the ACC is going to get mocked over it. You know, you can just envision it happening now, where one of these teams with the weaker ones is going to be undefeated in conference, and then they're going to lose three out of conference games, and they're going to be playing the championship game, and you know, a Clemson, Florida State, or Miami are going to you know, have played each other and have more losses in con. There's just something's going to happen with that, with any time I, you do that. I agree, Danny, but I will say,
3: do you, what do you think is, is going to happen more often? That the best two teams don't play in this model or the best two teams don't play in the old model? Because I would argue the old model because very frequently the best two teams in the ACC were in the same division and it was the Atlantic.
0: It was eleven to fourteen, Clemson and Florida State. If you were to power rank them, there was a four to five year run where whoever won that game was going to represent the division, but the other one was going to go to the second best bowl because they were the second best team.
3: And there are some years in which not only was the second best team in the ACC in the same division, there were some years in which the third best team was yeah. also in the same division. That's the what kind if of you just we went with the world. highest
4: ranked, you know, according to the College Football Playoff.
3: I think that's how they'll do tiebreakers. Well, the problem with that is that. And I agree, maybe for a tiebreaker, but you made the point, Danny, what if somebody goes 0-3 in the non-con? The variances in non-conference scheduling are far greater than the variance in the conference scheduling. So, the, the, like, if you have somebody who has a challenging schedule, for instance, let's take our Knowles, right? They played Florida and LSU this year. If you had this 3-5-5 three, 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 you know, five, five, five model kind of – this is going to be confusing, man. 3 3 5, 3 5 5. Sounds like a defensive <laughs> alignment. If you had FSU's non con schedule this year, right, and they play Louisiana, they're defending Sunbelt champ. Let's say they go 1 and 3 or 2 and 2 of those, but it, end up having a really nice conference season. And then somebody who plays a bunch, you know, four slappies goes 4 0. Oh. They're going to be higher ranked. Hell, they could be higher ranked and ha- like lose the head to head. So I, I think you go head to head as a first tiebreaker, I would hope. I, I haven't looked at the rules. I've been out here in LA, but.
0: Hey, the ACC champion lost a home game to Western Michigan last year. It's true, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But then they hit the gas. You know, took down Clemson, and before you know it, Pat Narduzzi and the Pitt Panthers are ACC champions for the first time. One last thing about this. 23 through 26, that's all they did. When they did that big grant of rights agreement, they tried to show you the scheduling model out to 2036. I think they learned their lesson. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be doing this 20 years in advance. We're going to give you bite-sized portions, and that should also take us right up into the introduction of the new college football playoff or the next era of college football. So we're only only doing baby steps here, so it does look like uh, the ACC has at least learned its lesson on that front. Well, Bud just mentioned Florida State having one of the toughest schedules in the ACC. I I definitely agree with that. Do they have one of the toughest schedules in the entire country? Where do we find the toughest schedules in the entire country? We'll get into that and more
2: next. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what?
0: back here on the Cover 3 podcast, want to, uh, as we continue our preparation, win totals again. uh, As long as enough people subscribe, we may or may not start releasing them July 11th. Uh, We might just hold them off and make you work even harder for them. But the current plan is that we are nearing the beginning of win totals. And as you've heard from our analysis over the years, a big part of that is breaking down the schedule and what kind of draw you get. Where are your home games? Where are your away games? What does your non-conference schedule look like? So we're going to start with a, a very big picture approach to this. We wanted to break down some of the toughest schedules in the entire country and then also maybe even look at what the best case and worst case scenarios are for some of these teams. So, bud, did you run your numbers?
3: I, I did look at the numbers a little bit here. Yeah. Um,
0: you want to get us why don't you turn the spotlight somewhere and we'll uh, and, and we'll go ahead and, and start to break it down.
3: So I think a lot of this depends on what type of team are you facing or are, what type of what type of team are you? Because for some of these schedules, you can have a very tough schedule for a top half team in college football. Like if you're the number 60 ranked team in college football out of, out of the 131, uh, a schedule might be really tough, but it may not be quite so tough for a national title contender, or it may not be quite so tough for a team that is kind of fringe top 25. So I, I just try to think about it. Like, is this a tough schedule for a, a good team, a team that if it has a nice year will be in the top 25? Just kind of a happy medium there. Uh, And to me, the the one that really stands out by quite a lot is is Auburn. Um, Auburn has the unfortunate scenario here of playing Penn State in the non-conference, which it lost to last year. Penn State should be a fringe top 25 caliber team this year, I would think. Uh, They have to play LSU. They have to play Alabama. They have to play Texas A&M, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Arkansas, because they're in the SEC West. However, their cross-opponents (laughs) – are also very difficult this year. They have to play uh, Georgia from the East, which – that's kind of the formula. If you're an SEC West team and you play Georgia every year and you schedule a big-time P5 non-conference, you have a really good shot of rating number one on my list of the most difficult schedules. And their uh, their other opponent from the East is – uh, Missouri. Missouri. Okay. Auburn better start hot because I – their closing here is very, very difficult. So they start Mercer, San Jose State, which we're probably not going to do Mountain West Conference specific episode win totals because this is a business. But I think San Jose State is probably pretty good like w- within that league. They're not going to pick them to win the league, but that's that's my number four team in the Mountain West. So that's not a cakewalk. They're not going to beat Auburn, but if Auburn is looking ahead to, to Penn State, they could give Auburn some trouble. Uh, then, like I said, Penn State, Missouri, LSU. You better start 4-1 and one there because then here it comes. At Georgia, at Old Miss, bye week, going to need it. Arkansas, at Mississippi State, Texas A&M, host Western Kentucky, which you won't lose, but that's not really an SEC SoCon Challenge Week type game. You're going to have to play how long before that game is put away? Forty minutes. They're going to throw the ball a million times. It's going to be a five-hour game. You're pretty tired legs, and then you got to go play on the road at Alabama. So, um, Auburn's my number one most difficult schedule for a for a decent team to play.
0: I think that it is so. Um, it, the fact that so many of the teams that I've identified as having some of the toughest schedules in the country also happen to have first year coaches or coaches on the hot seat or coaches desperately in need of like uh, a big step forward season is absolutely brutal because mm-hmm. Brian, Brian Harson's at the front of this what is a realistic expectation for Brian Harson when you do have those games because Penn State if just like as we're sitting here breaking it down I even with that game being at home I'm probably going to pick Penn State to win that game. Um, LSU, a huge question mark. Georgia's definitely a loss. Ole Miss, I tend to go the Rebs way that way. At Mississippi State, very tough. Texas A&M, I mean, this is a team that might not make a bowl game, even if they have a decent quality team.
1: I don't think they are going to make a bowl game. I've got them at 5.6. Yeah.
0: So that's, (laughs) hey, Brian Harson. we're not going to fire you. Despite all this, you know, your, your trip to Mexico, you know, you were able to, to hold down and weather the storm. But here's a schedule where getting to seven wins, which could, in an for any Auburn football coach, be viewed as like a, come on, seven and five wasn't good enough. That's not going to cut it. Like seven and five would be a great finish, in my opinion, for this schedule.
1: If they get to seven and five, extend Brian Harson. <laughs> Yeah, that's not
4: my honest to God reaction. No, they will no. <laughs> be done. You know, it'll be they're looking for the reason. So what, what I looked are at automatic losses. Yeah, two,
3: right? What Auburn? Auburn has Auburn has two games in which they're going to definitely be double digit underdogs and, you know, maybe three touch underdogs.
0: Are you saying Ole Miss and Alabama?
4: No,
3: at Georgia and at Alabama. Georgia.
0: Georgia they Alabama. Alabama all, they East took Texas Alabama. State.
4: I can hear the Auburn fan. We took Alabama to overtime last year. You think, like, think there'll be double digits at, at Old Miss? It's the week
3: after Georgia. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> and it's
1: it's also on the road. So it's like you start with Mercer and San Jose State, which I think they'll win both. I think Penn State's a coin flip. I think Missouri, they should win. I think LSU is a coin flip. But then you're on the road at Georgia. Then the week after you're on the road at Ole Miss, that's like, you know, that's what, seven games in a row. And those are games six and seven. So if you're banged up and you're playing those two road games, he and you're going to be banged up after Georgia, let's be real.
3: All right, I I know I was kind of indignant at the idea that they would be double digits at Ole Miss, but I actually have them eight point seven. So it's not that Yeah, it's not that it's not that far off. All yeah. right,
0: Danny, who who do you want to turn the spotlight on? Some of the toughest schedules in the entire country.
4: So I know I know it's not gonna do much for our numbers. Um, but so I, the way I did this is I looked at anybody who played Alabama, Georgia, or Ohio State. Like that because a lot of these schedules, like a lot of people you know, tough divisions or whatever, and I think then you look at the SEC West, all right, whose crossover games are Georgia, and you look at that's why Auburn's a, a perfect example. But Georgia Tech, and you mentioned there earlier, Jeff Collins, good luck to you. Georgia, obviously, rivalry game. They play at the end of the season every single year. Start off with Clemson where I think they're a 20-plus you know, point underdog. Then they better win the next one against Western Carolina. Ole Miss, having the year that they had, they play. Then UCF on the road is a tricky spot. Pitt defending conference champs on the road. Better win Duke. Virginia, I'd say is a toss up at Florida State, at Virginia Tech, Miami at home, at North Carolina, at Georgia. Like again, we're not in the business of firing coaches. Jeff Collins three, you know, back to back to back three win seasons what's their win total going to be? Like, is it two and a half? Is it three and a half? Is it so? like tech schedule makers in the business of firing <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: so, Exactly, like, They are in that position similar to um, like Georgia tech has Clemson every single year. It has always been one of their permanent cross division opponents will continue to be in the new scheduling format. You mentioned Georgia every single year, they are always going to have a difficult schedule in, in these ratings because of that. And to your point, Ole Miss and at UCF are two top 25 teams. Like, and then the way that it breaks down for Georgia Tech, four of the final five games are on the road. So if things have gone poorly, what you got in that locker room? Like, How, how are you connecting and, and how are you able to rally this group? And as, as you laid out right there, Danny, very well, um, the, those final opponents, which include closing things out with at North Carolina, at Georgia – I don't three straight three win seasons for Jeff Collins. I think that three wins against this schedule is an expectation.
3: Yeah. <laughs> what, what is successful if you're, if you're the AD and Collins comes into your office and he says, Hey, what do I need to
4: do to not get fired? How many wins do we have? Five would be a massive success. But that's the thing. He's, has he won more
1: than three games yet in a single season? No. And this will be year 4.
0: Not in not in uh not at Georgia Tech. He did at Temple. I think that it's that so he, oh, they open with uh you know Clemson, Ole Miss, UCF probably starting 1 and 3. I think that I look at Pitt, Duke, Virginia. <laughs> it's at FSU at Virginia Tech. I don't know. Duke and Virginia. Beat Duke and Virginia at home. That like if you can yeah. do that, beat Western Carolina and maybe get one more then I think that would be expectation. Like Compare yourself to the other teams that are kind of in your neighborhood of the ACC.
1: But, I mean, if I'm Georgia Tech's AD, and we're not in the business of firing coaches, but he's been there for three seasons. If I'm in year four, and it's like, hey, just beat Duke and Virginia at home, and you're good.
4: And this is Georgia Tech, which had a lot of success with Paul Johnson. I hear you. Yeah, then either I just don't care
1: or, you know, it's – yeah, I, the schedule is tough. It's a huge mountain for him to climb. But honestly, going into year four for me, if I'm an AD at a school, it's like, you better get to a bowl game. Figure it out. Or we're we're going to have to try something new.
3: When When's the last time Jeff Collins tweeted, right? Like, this is – is it – September fourth, twenty twenty one. He had a retweet, I think. I'm trying to look, like look. No, I'm serious. Like, like remember when know. he came there? He had all. Don't of call this. me out
0: for this. Hope <laughs> I don't get <laughs> investigated for a little like, tweet. He
3: he had all he had all, all this hype. He was you know it's it's, it's Waffle House, the A, all, all this stuff. Now their juice is just gone. Mm. On, on, like kids are not talking about them on the recruiting trail. It's it does feel like dead men walking, and the schedule just doesn't help. Obviously.
0: Tom, where's uh where, where would you like to turn our attention?
3: Uh I'll I'll go
1: to the Big Ten because I did just rank the Big Ten strength of schedule for for the CBS this week. I do want to start off by saying though that this is a very inexact science because like Bud, you you used your ratings to do this. I used my ratings to do the Big Ten, although I added some tweaks for like games before, you know, games after a bye, how many games in a row you've played, blah 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 yada yada yada, but just just for an example Barrett Salid did the SEC strength of schedule for us this week as well, which you should go read at cbssports.com, and Auburn is the toughest schedule in the SEC, but what's funny to me, and I mentioned this in our group text before the show, he's got Ole Miss ranked as the 14th, the easiest schedule in the SEC, but if we go to 24-7 sports, Brad Crawford a few months ago ranked the most difficult schedules in the country and he's got Ole Miss as having the 11th most difficult, and Barrett's got him as the 14th most difficult within their own conference, which goes to show it's not an exact science. But anyways, in the Big Ten, I think based on my ratings, Maryland has the toughest schedule in the conference. It's got two killer stretches like the non-con starts with Buffalo and then at Charlotte, which is really at Jerry Richardson Stadium, home of the Carolina Panthers, which I think are going to be wins. But I think their third non-conference game against SMU that's going to be a difficult one simply because maryland doesn't really play much defense so that's probably going to be shootout kind of coin flip game but where it really gets difficult is they start conference play at michigan and then they get michigan state then they get a few coin flip games against purdue indiana northwestern and they get their bye. and then this is november for the terps (laughs) at wisconsin at penn state Ohio State, and then you finish up with Rutgers. But by the time you get to that game, you might be dead. So there's no guarantee you're going to win that game. So when you're in the Big Ten East and you've already got to play Michigan State, Michigan and Penn State, drawing in Ohio State, drawing Wisconsin on the road from the West is just mean. So Maryland's in a tough situation. But I think the more important schedule in the Big Ten as far as difficulty, Ohio State. Mm. Mm-hmm. finished second. And it's when you look at this, they open the year with Notre Dame in Columbus. Now I don't think Notre Dame is going to be a playoff team this year, but it's still Notre Dame. It's still not going to be an easy opponent. And we saw what happened last year against Oregon kind of killed Ohio state's playoff hopes. In the end, Arkansas state, not worried about Toledo. I'm not worried about, but Toledo is probably one of the two. I would say there's a, if Toledo wins the Mac this year, I don't think it would surprise any of us. So that's a decent non-con game. But then you get Wisconsin, a a draw from the West in Columbus, Rutgers. You're at Michigan State. You have your bye. Then you get Iowa from the West before you're on the road against Penn State. and Then you're on the road against Northwestern. And then you finish with Indiana at Maryland, Michigan. So you've got your Big Ten East schedule where you get Michigan State, Penn State, and and, Michigan. And Michigan, that the other Michigan one that I didn't already say. But then you're drawing both Wisconsin and Iowa from the West. Then you're adding Notre Dame in non conference. Like that's what? One, two, three teams on your schedule that have been to the college football playoff before. A team that's the perennial favorite in the West, a Michigan State team, you know, it's taking a step forward. Iowa, it's a perennial favorite in the West. Penn State, which I think is due for a bounce back. Like, I think Ohio State's going to go eleven and one at worst, but that's still a really tough schedule for somebody who is, you know, expected to reach the playoff to face. So it's like if they lose twice, it's not going to be a shock to me.
0: It's so interesting that Ohio State still is able to do that because Ohio State, in terms of strength of schedule, if you wanted a tough strength of schedule, has the advantage of not playing Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Like, inherently, because Ohio State can't play Ohio State, they are missing uh, one of the toughest opponents, the toughest opponent, probably from a ratings perspective in the Big Ten. I, I wanted to turn the spotlight on Notre Dame. I thought I think Notre Dame has one of the toughest schedules in the country, and a lot of it starts with the fact that they are in the shoe right there on September 3rd in primetime against Ohio State. That schedule also includes finishing the year on the road at USC. Ohio State, USC, oh yeah, by the way, Clemson's coming to town on November 5th. I mean, I think Notre Dame, under Marcus Freeman year one, could have a great team go 9-3 and and be looking up as they're playing in the New Year's Six Bowl and their three losses are to three college football playoff teams. Like This is a very, very difficult schedule that also includes uh, a road trip to North Carolina at the end of September. The rest of the road games are much more manageable as it really is just a neutral site against BYU. Could be tricky. And then they're going to go uh, to play Syracuse in the Dome, home draw, Marshall, Cal, Stanford, UNLV, uh, and then they're going to Baltimore to play Navy Notre Dame has uh, a claim that they are always putting together one of the toughest schedules in the country. You always are going to have some of those traditional games and, and a couple of times a year where Notre Dame is going to be a heavy, heavy favorite. Yet every year they end up near the top of the strength of schedule ratings. I think that Notre Dame, again, Ohio State, USC, Clemson, and then a couple tricky spots there. This is a team that could be playoff caliber on in a vacuum on a neutral field and yet wind up eight and four, nine and three at the end of the season.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite like college football fan narratives that you hear every year is that Notre Dame plays an easy schedule and Notre Dame never plays an easy schedule. <laughs> it's like, oh. yeah, they, they have some games. Like it's like they think because they play Navy or they'll play UNLV, like it's an easy schedule. Like the other programs in the country aren't playing bottom tier teams and non-con and in their own conferences, like year in and year out, it might not be the most difficult, but Notre Dame never has an easy schedule.
3: I'm not sure there's a schedule in the country that offers more potential variance in terms of opponent quality. I've looked at this thing and I've I've not bet Notre Dame's win total, like my personal stuff yet, but there are so many teams here that I think could be a good bit better than people think, or could also be a lot worse than people think. Ohio state is not one of those teams. I'm pretty sure Ohio state is is really good, but I, I don't know exactly what to make of Marshall this year. They lost their quarterback Grant Wells as a transfer to the Hokies. Is Cal going to have an offense? Because if Cal has an offense, that's a a game that if Notre Dame plays its C game and Cal plays out of its mind, they could win even in Notre Dame Stadium. How is UNC? Are they actually a post-type sleeper? Is their strength program any good? Are they going to get pushed around like they did last year? Or do they just get pushed around because they were a bunch of young guys and now they have another year in the weight room and they're okay? I think BYU is probably pretty good. Like Notre Dame, I think they're favored there, but they're not – you're not laying more than a touchdown in pro. I, I don't think – I think Stanford's going to suck, but they do have Tanner McKee. Maybe they are a little better than I realize. UNLV, I actually think, is a really uh, improved team, one of my most improved teams in the country. I think they're doing a really nice job building their roster, and I think for the first time in a long time, they will not be bottom four in the Mountain West. Um, they actually might be better than Wyoming, too. Uh, Syracuse? I am down on Syracuse. David Hale actually likes Syracuse quite a bit this year, and he covers the ACC, and I respect his opinion on ACC teams a lot. So there's a lot of disagreement. Navy, probably still a year away. Clemson, Boston College, again, that's, that's another team that's kind of sketchy, but they have an NFL quarterback, I think. And then USC, I mean, power ratings on USC right now are wildly different I mean, to the point of like like a full touchdown different from people I respect. I think bottom
1: line, when you look at the schedule, and you try to think of how hard it can possibly be. You've got three teams that could realistically be in the college football playoff this year on the schedule. You've got Ohio State, Clemson, and USC. If those three are three of the four teams in the SEC champion, it won't be like some sort of, wow, that was a wild, crazy year nobody saw coming.
0: Yep, 100%. I've got... Uh, if- Big 10 East teams cycle up a lot. I think Indiana has a really tough schedule. Yeah. Probably has has a claim to that. They've played Cincinnati. Cincinnati also play SEC West teams also cycle up here. Cincinnati also is a big um hook on why I think Arkansas has one of the toughest schedules in the entire country. So, we have our built-in You know, SEC West uh, foes that are going to make that difficult. Uh, In particular, they're going to be playing at Mississippi State. Arkansas is going to be playing at Texas A&M. They do host Alabama. You know, they do host uh, LSU. go on the road to play Auburn. So the home-away splits host Ole Miss as well. Home-away splits are are not particularly challenging, but it is the non-conference that takes it over the top for me, where Cincinnati uh, is going to be in the opening weekend. BYU comes along in October. And I'm not considering uh, Liberty as the same threat without Malik Willis, but Liberty right there. But here's the icing on the cake, and this is not necessarily why they have the toughest schedule in the country. Bobby Petrino is still the head coach at Missouri State, right? hmm Will Bobby Petrino wear the Sugar Bowl hat as he <laughs> returns to Arkansas as Missouri State takes on the Razorbacks on September 17th, Cincinnati, BYU make this really, really tough for Arkansas, a team that's already going to have a difficult draw. But Missouri State makes it one of my favorite schedules in the entire country.
1: Just how shocked would any of us be if Arkansas beats Cincinnati
3: in the opener? <laughs> Not shocked. Wait, if Arkansas beats or if they're a touchdown, they're a touchdown. Would be yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see what Cincinnati looks like this year. I still think they're going to be one of the best teams in the AAC. It's just I feel like we might be giving them, when it comes to schedule rankings, some people might be giving them 2022 Cincinnati rankings. Yeah, 20. I, or 2021.
0: Like considering the, like, oh, with all the success, or the last two years, right? Mm-hmm. It's like 2020, 2021, and, and that goes into the power ratings. You know, your results from recent years. Yeah, let's Let's go ahead and uh, lock it up.
1: If if Arkansas does win that game, though, I'm I'm squatting on the SC, They shouldn't have been in the playoff take.
4: Mm. <laughs>
1: this good. proves it. This
3: proves it. Do you know who has a sneaky uh, tough schedule this year? By the way, who? Northwestern. Yeah, because they, they don't get to play themselves, right? <laughs> and so that's going to hurt. The, that's going to like you know make their schedule rating tougher. Everybody else in the Big Ten West gets to play Northwestern yeah I had so, them fourth in the big ten I think I had yeah my big ten is very clustered at the top because it's it's essentially not if, much you're in the West, mm-hmm. like, if you're in the West, do you dodge Ohio State or not? If you're in the east, it's do you get Northwestern or not basically,
1: yeah, and Northwestern does not dodge Ohio State and they no. also get Penn State on top of it, and they also get Maryland on the road because this year the east with the crossover, it's their year to get two home games compared to. They, they flip flop every year with their nine game schedule. So, yeah, you're you're drawing Ohio State, Penn State, Maryland. You get Wisconsin at home, but you've got to go on the road for Iowa. You've got to go on the road for Minnesota and Purdue, which when you look at like that kind of stuff, like and we'll get into this, I'm sure, on win totals. When you're getting to those coin flip games, traditionally, you want those at home. You don't want them on the road. And a lot of their coin flip games are on the road.
3: How far down your list do you have to go before you find a Big 12 team? Or Pac-12 because Pac-12
0: has total balance. Uh, at least this year too, because with a nine-game schedule and only six teams in each division, you play everybody in your division and four from the other.
4: Let's see, that's Oregon the- popped up for me because of the George. Like I was looking at George's opponents. All right, let's see what Oregon does. Oregon schedule that one's tough. BYU is a tricky game, but then it's like the rest of the. They have Utah at home. Washington at home so I couldn't justify putting them anywhere in this conversation even close yeah,
1: I, I mean I, I think
4: Baylor schedule is
1: kind of difficult in that it's not so much the non-conference because when you go to the big 12 it's you, you're not going to find a ton of huge non-conference like really difficult non-conference schedules they they tend to be pretty smart about it but their non-con does include the road trip to BYU. And then in conference play, they've got Iowa State on the road, Texas Tech on the road, Oklahoma on the road, Texas on the road. So it's like when you get that kind of draw and you're playing those games on the road, it it does add some difficulty to it overall. But yeah, like Big 12 schedules for the most part are all kind of all clustered together in my ratings. Texas. Oh, sorry,
3: good chip.
0: I was gonna say Texas is the toughest in the Big Twelve for me. You got Alabama, um, UTSA which is good, and then ULM as, uh, is, is the most favorable one there. There's no FCS team like you find on a lot of Big 12 schedules. Uh, ULM. <laughs> but <laughs> but UTSA, while they're, I'm not expecting UTSA to run back the amazing season they had last year, that is still a very, very difficult challenge for the Longhorns. And so the presence of the Tide and UTSA, where it's at right now under Jeff Trailer, I've got them as probably the Toughest in the Big Twelve.
1: I get that, but what's their toughest road game?
0: At oh, the neutral, oh, at uh, Oklahoma State. At Oklahoma State. At Kansas State. Back to back is. But there's a buy between them. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true.
1: I, yeah, I, I, their schedule's tough. It's just it could be a lot tougher. I think. I mean, Alabama. Once you get after Alabama, then the Oklahoma game. I feel like it's kind of downhill for the most part.
3: I I uh, actually between those two conferences. Um, I, I agree with Texas, but I think Stanford actually has a sneakily tough schedule, which is probably not what David Shaw wants to hear this year. Uh, Another they, they coach All needs
4: power Five season. thing again.
3: So they play Utah, Oregon, and USC in the Pac-12, which mm-hmm. I, I don't know what y'all's power ratings look like. It's kind of the mystery of the show. We'll, we'll talk about it in win But spoiler alert, those are my three top teams <laughs> in the Pac-12. And then they also have to throw Notre Dame on there, and they and they play BYU. Also, they they play a difficult roadie at Oregon State. Like that's never a, a trip you want to make. Um, it's it's kind of also
1: another thing about Stanford's schedule, and I see this a lot. And maybe it's just because of the way they break up their academic calendar, but like they start with Colgate, which whatever. But then they get USC on the road. Then they take their bye in the third week of the season, and they don't take a bye for the rest of the year.
0: Mm. No, you and that's need that. just
1: bad scheduling in my mind because you need time off later in the year to recover.
0: I mean, that one of the really bad uh, Clay Hilton USC seasons ended that way.
1: They I had think like, USC, yeah, their schedule buying, might be similar that way.
0: They had their buying like week three and then just ran off a bunch of mm-hmm. games, with no breaks. And all of a sudden, when you've got depth issues, well, we've got no time to correct those. You know what I think it is?
1: Just off the top of my head here, I think Stanford and USC have one thing in common, Notre Dame, and they kind of rotate when they play them every other year. I think it depends on who gets Notre Dame late that year. They get kind of screwed with their buy situation.
0: mm, Mm. We'll keep an eye on that. And as Bud mentioned, a lot of this will play a big factor uh, into our win totals analysis. But. We will be back tomorrow, 11 a.m. Eastern time with questions from the big old bag of mail. A reminder, if you want to add a question to a future mailbag episode, you can do that by leaving us a five-star review. And in that review, put your mailbag question. We will tackle it in a future mailbag episode. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Pennelly. You can follow him at Bud Elliott 3 You can follow him at Danny Canelli You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank
1: you very much. Thank you.